Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. And today we have a very exciting episode of the show for you today. Joining us on the other side of the mic is our guest, Nabil Manji, head of crypto and Web3 at WorldPay. We're going to be speaking about WorldPay, which was acquired by payments processing giant FIS back in 2019 making it one of the largest, if not the largest, payment processors operating globally today. So we'll be talking about how WorldPay fits into that firm and its overall strategy for crypto, WorldPay's vision for Web3, and much more. But before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. It's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon 2. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based layer one blockchain with secure, decentralized access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's native interoperability protocols provide developers with a variety of high-integrity price and event data, including detailed transaction proofs from other chains and information from Web2 APIs. Build better and connect everything at flare.network. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblock.co slash terms dash service. Once again, I want to thank our guest, Nabil, who's the senior vice president, head of crypto and Web3 at WorldPay. Thanks so much for joining us. Again, I think last time we had some technical difficulties. I also didn't get to see your face. So this is quite the treat. You were the man behind the proverbial curtain last time. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time to join us in the new year. And I'm sure this conversation will be just as delightful as I remember the first. Great. Thanks, Frank. Really appreciate you having me. And uh, yeah, likewise, excited to speak with you again. I think last time we spoke, we kind of mused quite a bit about how FIS is probably the largest financial services company that no one's ever really heard of, and also based in Jacksonville. We joked a bit about Jacksonville last <laughs> time. Uh, maybe walk us through both firms and, and sort of why people should have both on their radar. Sure. Yeah. So you you remember my tagline verbatim. I like to say FIS slash WorldPay is, is the largest, you know, or one of the largest companies that most people have never heard of. And that's because we're really, I would say, back-end infrastructure or what I like to call the plumbing of a lot of different segments of the financial services industry. Um, and so just some kind of background on the companies. So WorldPay in its various incarnations has been around for several decades now. And WorldPay, prior to its acquisition by FIS, was the world's largest payment processing company in the world. So most people don't really know this or, or aren't aware of this, but Whenever you go shop at a, a merchant, like a retailer or a grocery store or an online store or whatever it is, those merchants don't have direct relationships with companies like Visa or MasterCard or Apple Pay or Google Pay or whatever. All those companies work with a payment processor or what's called a merchant acquirer in industry lingo 
to allow them to accept payments across all those different methods and channels. And so our business is really enabling merchants, whether they're brick and mortar or e-commerce or both, whether they're small or large or somewhere in between, and whether they operate in one country or dozens of countries to accept payments seamlessly from their consumers and, and other customers. And so just for a sense of scale perspective, last year we processed somewhere in the neighborhood of $2 trillion worth of transactions across a variety of payment methods, across more than 100 different currencies, and across, I believe it was 50 to 60 different countries on a local basis. So quite a large company, um, you know, definitely a leader in the payment space. And then FIS, uh, prior to acquiring WorldPay in 2019, played a very similar role, uh, again, providing financial infrastructure, software, business process outsourcing, backend payment processing services, and other bits and pieces, primarily into the financial services segment, and specifically banks and asset managers. So we're talking the real backend plumbing stuff, you know, the core ledger systems that manage consumer and business balances in their checkings and savings accounts, programs and software to help calculate, you know, balances and interest payables and fees mm -hmm. on things like loans, software to help manage compliance and legal obligations. So all sorts of different stuff, but two very similar companies just on kind of different sides of the same coin, if you will, which is which is kind of what drove them together in 2019. And so today we're a company of about 75,000 employees, do about $15 billion in net revenue, operate in, as I mentioned, over 60 countries and are really serving banks and asset managers, like I mentioned from the FIS side, and then also merchants uh, from the WorldPay side. Understood. So walk us through how crypto fits in. Obviously, when people think about the use case at the forefront, it's payments, maybe not necessarily for Bitcoin, but for stablecoin, for sure. Although the narrative for the former has ebbed and flowed over the past several years. How does crypto fit in to you know, a payment processing giant? Is the storied, much talked about hype around how it can ameliorate a lot of the issues with payments, is that overstated or, or understated? Probably somewhere in between, <laughs> but let me answer the first part of your question first. So as it relates to crypto, we kind of started dipping our feet in the water back in kind of 2014, 2015. And by dipping our feet in the water, what I really mean is we started offering products and services into the crypto space. So started providing, you know, payment products or fiat rails, as some people in the industry like to call it, to some of the large exchanges and wallets and brokerages. We also provide fraud and risk management services and um, pay out products as well. So we've been in and around the space, mainly as a service provider for, you know, seven, eight years now. And through that, we've been able to get quite smart on the industry. You know, today, we've got a team of close to 100 people across all sorts of disciplines and areas of expertise, uh, whose full time job it is to really, you know, increase our presence in the space, whether that's selling more products and services or, or building things. And on that latter note, and kind of in relation to kind of the future of crypto and payments, as, as you alluded to, you know, as a large payments company, specifically one that operates across payment methods, currencies, countries, et cetera, we always, you know, need to and want to have our pulse on mm -hmm. one of the different technologies out there that could augment our business, disrupt our business, replace our business, whatever it might be. And as you, as you alluded to, you know, payments and financial services more broadly has always been talked about as an area where whether it's crypto in terms of the digital asset itself or blockchain slash DLT as the underlying technology, you know, could have major applications. And so we've spent the the more recent few years getting smart, 
you know, what are the different layer ones and layer twos out there? What are the dApps that are seeing traction? What are the enterprise use cases that are, are getting some more tailwinds behind them? And so we're kind of in this journey where we're going from just being a service provider to the space to actually being a participant in the space. And we just are kind of at that precipice of starting to deploy new products and services that actually leverage digital assets and DLT specifically. And the first one actually uses stable coins, which, which you mentioned in your question. And so that's the journey that we're on as kind of a large financial services organization. And then, you know, to the extent crypto and DLT is going to disrupt or replace payments, I think some of what's set out there is probably a bit of hyperbole and probably a bit overstated. But I think people that say, you know, digital assets and the underlying technology are going to have no role in the future of payments are probably, you know, massively understating as well. And reality, as it often is, is probably going to be somewhere in between the two extreme ends of the spectrum. So you mentioned uh, an aspect of your business, which we didn't yet unfurl, which is the sort of institutional crypto services that you offer to mm-hmm. funds, asset managers. There's a custody element. What has demand for those services look like amidst this sort of, you know, crypto capital markets cataclysm? (laughs) Yeah, so I would say, you know, tail end of 2020 and then all the way through 2021 and even early mid 2022, the amount of, you know, institutional engagement in the topic you know, just skyrocketed, if I'm being honest. Mm. If I think back, you know, five, six years ago, if you wanted to talk to a bank or an asset manager, you know, trust company or whatever about crypto, most of them didn't know what you were talking about, if not more than a service level. But now almost everybody, at least in the enterprise space, has at least one or two people or maybe a small team that they call their digital asset team or their crypto team or their Web3 team. So I think one thing I would say just thematically is there's been a plethora of kind of education that's taken place in the institutional financial services ecosystem over the past two or three years, which is really good. I will say, however, that the quote unquote cataclysmic events, as you referenced over the past nine months or so, has definitely, you know, had implications in the sense that I think a lot of organizations are maybe putting pause on certain projects or reducing investment in certain projects, uh, taking a much more measured pace to investments or deploying new products, especially when those products or services are are in highly regulated areas of the ecosystem. So I think if I sum it up and reflect, you know, on the past three years as a whole, I would say the interest, the education level, the awareness, whatever terms you want to use, are today still an order of magnitude higher than they were than in like mid or early 2020. But I think we also as an industry need to be very honest with ourselves and say, the challenges presented over the past nine months and some of the problems that those have uncovered are are very material. And until, you know, some or all of those are are meaningfully addressed, I do think it's gonna, you know, delay or postpone or whatever term you want to use, the pace at which institutions and enterprises in financial services might have leveraged digital assets or the underlying technology, you know, had it not been for those events. So I've spoken with a few different investors in the market post-FTX, and there's a spectrum of concern about institutions. There's one fund in particular whose two largest LPs are thinking about redeeming, exiting the market. They just don't trust it. But the interesting situation here is that 
the bad players, if you will. Obviously, FTX was a fraud, and then there was a lot of bad lending. I was reading a really well-put and thoughtful note from our friends at Bernstein. And as Bernstein points out here, you had all of them, they're all facing the consequences of that. But Ethereum as a system, this is their words, continues to chug away processing 15 transactions per second. There's multiple layer twos on Ethereum that are now adding scaling capacity and application developers continue to deploy code. In addition, right, you sort of see the crypto development activity continuing and there hasn't really been any mass exodus of crypto developers as evident by our friends at Electric Capital. So there's this interesting juxtaposition of the sort of infrastructure, capital markets infrastructure of crypto being rotted and tainted to its core, whilst the actual blockchain infrastructure has stood up quite well. So there's almost like an interesting situation where the actual crypto element of the market is is faring fine, but the fact that you have a lack of trust in, a rot in the actual capital markets infrastructure likely to keep certain players from entering just because that is the vector through which they would tap into the more crypto element. They need those middlemen, if you will. So how do we maybe overcome that? Is it is that present an opportunity for you? And maybe just your thoughts on that juxtaposition. Yeah, lot to unpack there. So, so one thing I would say, and actually it's kind of a, a frustration of mine, and I think when you talk to a lot of people about crypto, they have a really hard time distinguishing cryptocurrency as in like the assets, many of which are speculative investments, versus the underlying technology, blockchain or DLT, whatever you want to call it. And for better or worse, those two things get crowded together. And what happens to one seems to impact the narrative and willingness to invest or dabble in the other. Um, what I would say is, look, there's a segment of the market out there, both on the retail side and the institutional side, specifically in the asset management side, that does like to invest in crypto, does like to speculate on it, does like to bet on projects, you know, whatever you want to do. There's another side of the market that's much more focused on what we've internally started to call the boring side of crypto. Mm which is really like, how do you leverage blockchain and DLT to augment or enhance or replace existing financial infrastructure products that, you know, in many cases have been around since the 60s or 70s. So what I would say is, you know, your guess is as good as mine on where the future of crypto is like a speculative asset class goes. And, you know, there's probably some assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum, some of the other big layer ones, some of the more successful dApps that have their own token that They'll probably persist because they're building good ecosystems. The technology is performative, as you talked about. You know, they have you know decent user bases and you know are fulfilling their obligations or trying to, and their price will reflect that. I think the other side that's more interesting for us as a kind of core technology and infrastructure provider really is that latter piece of the puzzle, which is how do we take some of our portfolio of five, six hundred products and augment, enhance, replace, upgrade, whatever term you want to use by leveraging blockchain and DLT. And so that's really where we're kind of focused from an investment standpoint. And I do think if you look at some of the larger financial services, technology providers, and in some cases, a lot of the larger banks, they're continuing to invest on that kind of technology adoption side, even while simultaneously maybe pulling back on the more speculative investment side. I'll give you a couple examples. So we work with a number of large banks around the world to support our payment flows on the world pay side. 
many of them candidly are kind of paring the back their risk appetite to service money flows or money movement related to crypto companies or crypto purchases, while at the same time, increasing the size of their innovation teams that are leveraging how that bank itself could actually use blockchain or DLT to make itself more efficient and you know achieve other benefits. So I think that's kind of what we're seeing in the market is the pace of investment on the technology side on the enterprise spectrum of the market, I don't think has changed that dramatically. But the enterprise willingness to permit or invest in crypto from like an asset standpoint has definitely tapered off. So let's focus maybe on the ways in which you are augmenting your own systems and processes mm-hmm. with crypto. Stablecoin mm-hmm. settlement seems to be a big focus. Can you unpack exactly what you are doing there and the extent to which sure. you could penetrate the business as it operates today? Yeah, I'll give a couple of examples of what we're doing, including stablecoin settlement. So for any merchant that works with us and accepts card payments or e-wallet payments or whatever payment method it might be, they always need to tell us how they would like to receive the settlement of those funds. Mm-hmm. So if I'm a multinational e-commerce company and I'm selling to consumers in 30 or 40 or 50 different countries, I don't necessarily want to receive settlement for those transactions in 30 or 40 or 50 different currencies. You know, I may or may not have entities or operations or employees in all those countries. Uh, I may or may not have vendors in all those countries. And so maybe depending on where my footprint is, where my employees are, where my vendors are, and what currencies I need to pay them in, I'm going to probably have more demand for some currencies like USD or Euro or GBP versus, you know, something more a far field than that. And so we basically offer this service as do as does every other payment processor to allow merchants to receive settlement for any transactions in the currency that they desire and they need. And so what we've done is we've actually added stable coins and in specific uh, USDC as another menu of settlement currency on our existing menu. And so now if I'm a WorldPay client and I think I could have a more efficient liquidity management program or more efficiently pay my vendors or employees by using USDC, instead of USD or euros, I can say, hey, WorldPay, I would like to receive settlement from all of my payment transactions in USDC. And we can do that. Um, so that that's kind of the first, I would say, crypto native product or, you know, upgraded product leveraging crypto that we've got in our portfolio. And that's that's quite interesting, especially for some of these crypto native firms who, again, maybe pay their developers or employees in USDC or pay their liquidity providers in USDC or whatever it might be. Another example is is we have a tax reporting product in the U.S. So if you're a U.S. citizen and you invest in stocks or ETFs or bonds using something like a Robinhood or a Charles Schwab or Fidelity, you will recall that every year sometime in February, you get a statement in the mail called the 1099B and it'll tell you, uh, dear Frank, for your trading activity on my platform for tax year 2022, your net capital gains and losses, long-term and short-term, are these amounts. Your dividends and interest received are these amounts. And they also file that with the IRS because it's required. Now, those in the crypto space will know that the IRS is going to start mandating that exact same type of reporting for crypto exchanges for their U.S. consumers in 2023. So in February 2024, every U.S. customer that trades crypto on a crypto exchange like Coinbase or Gemini or Crypto.com is going to get that same 1099B form, it's going to say, Dear Frank, 
here's your long-term capital gains and losses and short-term capital gains and losses from trading crypto on our platform for 2023. Now, we already have this product for traditional equities and ETFs. And all we did is integrate a data feed that includes crypto prices you know, for each day so that we can now allow our clients, who in often, in many cases, offer consumers the ability to trade in securities and crypto, to offer a consolidated 1099B. So I don't know if you use Robinhood, but you know many people use Robinhood to trade both stocks and crypto. Well, now, rather than getting two separate 1099Bs, you're just going to get one 1099B from Robinhood that's going to tell you everything you need to file your taxes. So that's kind of what we mean when we say, you know, augment or enhance a product to, you know, support crypto native functionality. It's really how do we help these companies, whether they're crypto natives or non crypto natives, a benefit from some of the benefits that DLT and crypto offers, as in the case of the stablecoin settlement solution, or actually allow their consumers to access crypto native products and services while still maintaining their compliance obligations, as in the case of the, the tax reporting example. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. And it's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon too. Shield your funds and use them privately on your favorite DeFi apps. Railgun's cutting edge zero knowledge system encrypts your data from public view. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based layer one blockchain with secure access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's state connector acquires detailed transaction data from blockchains and information from Web2 APIs in a decentralized way, so it can be used securely, scalably, and trustlessly in applications running on the network. Paired with the Flare Time Series Oracle for decentralized price and time series data, Flare delivers a developer focused blockchain with secure native access to more off-chain data than ever before. Build better and connect everything at flare.network. Finally, we want to thank leading VPN provider NordVPN. You know, my grandmother always used to say, show me a man's calendar and his checkbook and I'll tell you everything I need to know about him. That's why I believe it's vital to take control of my online financial activity with NordVPN to protect my privacy. You know, I don't want a browser or some protocol or decentralized app being able to tell where I live and track my financial transactions. We've spoken with the team and your crypto security is their top priority. You can grab your exclusive NordVPN deal now by going to nordvpn.com slash the scoop to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan, plus four additional months for free. It's easy to set up and Nord even gives you a 30-day money-back guarantee. Check out the link in the description for more details. Now, maybe looking at the other side of the coin to use that mm-hmm. pun again. <laughs> what about services or products that are crypto enabled but targeted at non-crypto institutions? I feel like that, sure. that grouping was crypto products for crypto people. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you have something that is yes. is maybe the opposite or the flip? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're working on a couple things. So one concept that we're quite bullish on and are just starting to invest in is 
tokenization as a service mm. or something to that effect. And Toss. you know, a lot of <laughs> yeah, there you go, Tass. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but FIS is actually the eleventh largest custodian of traditional financial assets in the U.S. behind Wells Fargo, who's number ten. So we actually custody today. Um, via gotta, subsidiary. You gotta bump that up. You gotta beat. You gotta beat Wells. I know. Yeah, we're coming for them. Um, but no, on a serious note, we we custody a variety of traditional financial assets like four hundred one k plans, IRA plans, pension funds, etc. So we're very you know comfortable with the notion of of custodying traditional financial assets at scale. And I think if you look a lot of across a lot of traditional financial asset classes, whether it's you know private equity funds that have started tokenizing a portion of their their fund, or people that have tokenized real estate or securities or whatever it might be. We're quite bullish on this concept of like taking all these off-chain assets or TradFi assets, whatever you want to call them, and putting them on-chain, tokenizing them to actually increase efficiency, increase liquidity, and kind of drive you know some benefit for the market. And so that's an area that you're going to see us invest in over the next year or two, and hopefully bring you know some products to market. And that would be a product where we can go to any of our existing asset management clients who trade or custody or store traditional financial assets to say, hey, do you want to tokenize it? If so, we've got a platform for you and here are the benefits associated with doing so. So that would be an example of like a DLT or crypto enabled product, but targeted at a you know non-crypto buyer and in reality, you know, benefiting or supporting non-crypto kind of end use cases in the sense that all those assets being tokenized actually have nothing to do with crypto. And what are the benefits? Yeah, good question. So if you take like real estate, for example, right, I don't think anybody would say the process today of transacting real estate or, uh, you know, obtaining title information or anything like that is fast or cost effective. So I think there's a lot of benefit there. I think if you look at traditional uh, financial assets like securities, you know, despite the fact that trades will post in your brokerage account instantly, you'll see your balance is updated. Those trades actually don't settle and clear and don't reconcile for, you know, two, three business days. So I still think, like, I love to use this word "plumbing," where if you think about traditional, I actually have my, I have today, a plumber coming today. As a matter <laughs> of fact, very coincidental. Yeah. That's good. Um, but I think, like, if you look at a lot of traditional financial services today, where there's been a lot of in- innovation, I would say is on kind of the consumer-facing side of it, or the front end, or the veneers that have been put on all the existing plumbing. But the actual plumbing itself whether it's for, you know, securities trading or payments or banking or lending, none of that's changed that much in the past few decades. It's just been prettied up and presented in a in a more friendly way for consumers. And so now I think we're at that stage where it's like, okay, if we want to take financial services to the next level, the plumbing that was built over the past 20, 30, 40 years isn't going to stand up to that next set of pressures or requirements or criteria. And so we need to invest there. And that's where I think some of these applications or technologies or products can come into play. Yeah, it makes sense. Is there a house view on CBDCs? Um, I don't know if there's a house view, but there's a Nabil view. <laughs> um, so what I will tell you is we do have a CBDC team. Uh, so we are staying abreast of the developments in the space. We are participating in a few, you know, proof of concept or pilot development programs with a handful of central banks around the world. So it's definitely a topic we're interested in. I don't know that we've published kind of an FIS view. Uh, so this is definitely my personal opinion. But my opinion is 100% that CBDCs are a question of when and not if. 
Uh, and I'll actually talk about, you know, you mentioned the Bernstein report earlier. There was actually a really interesting report that came out from Bank of America this week on this that basically had the exact same conclusion. And let me tell you why. So I think if I was in the seat of a you know central bank governor or a finance minister or treasurer or whatever, I think the benefits of CBDC are are far too great to ignore. And I'll give you a couple examples. So I think everyone's familiar with the you know COVID-related stimulus programs that were enacted you know in a lot of Western countries. You know the U.S. deployed hundreds of billions of dollars in COVID stimulus. The U.K. and Europe deployed tens of billions. And now that we're kind of on the tail end or kind of coming out of the pandemic and, you know, audits are being done on how that money was spent, people are doing lookbacks, it's become pretty apparent that a big chunk of that money was sent to people it shouldn't have been spent to and or spent on things it shouldn't have been spent on. I read a Wall Street Journal article towards the end of last year, and it said, uh, I might get the number slightly wrong, but if I recall correctly, it said that the preliminary analysis I forget which third party or think tank did this, but the analysis suggested that somewhere in the neighborhood of $45 billion of COVID-related stimulus in the U.S. was misallocated or misspent. That's a lot of money. Um, now, in today's world, we don't have this concept of programmable money. And what's interesting about CBDCs is if you think about programmable money, if I'm a government and I'm dispersing stimulus, can I program that stimulus program and the currency that's being allocated or distributed as part of that to only be eligible to be sent to wallets that meet a certain criteria? And then once that money is in those wallets, that money can only be spent on goods and services that meet a certain criteria. So that way, I'm not sending stimulus funds to some business or business owner that doesn't meet the criteria who then goes and spends it on a Ferrari, which it shouldn't be spent on, which happens, right? So I think this whole concept of programming money and the use of programmable money to actually achieve kind of social or governmental aims is really, really interesting and can dramatically cut down the cost of fraud that happens in those programs today. And I think if you ask most people, like we probably all agree that, you know, misuse of government funds is a good thing for the government to invest in. And then another reason is if you think about you know, government's concerns uh, in the current financial system, things like money laundering prevention or tax evasion. Part of the reason that, you know, countries today have a big concern about those two topics is because it is quite difficult to trace money today. Like, yes, each bank you work with creates records and maintain things. But if I'm a sophisticated actor, I might, you know, funnel funds through 5, 10, 15 different banks and, you know, 5, 10, 15 different entities across those banks. And before you know it, you've got this pretty convoluted paper trail that's going to take someone a heck of a lot of time to figure out. And they may or may not figure it out in time or figure it out correctly to actually like enforce any sort of action or, uh, you know, achieve any sort of beneficial outcome. And so similarly, you know, people always talk about the traceability, the auditability, the transparency of transactions on the blockchain. I think if I was the head of the IRS, I'd be drooling over that and what that means in terms of cracking down on tax evasion. So. I think those are just two examples of some of the benefits where I actually think there's actually a really good business case, if nothing else, for governments to invest in CBDC. And I think because of that, you know, it leads me to the pretty strong conclusion that it's going to be a reality at some point in the future. But whether that's two years, five years, 10 years or 20 years from now, your guess is as good as mine. Yes, but I guess there's also a, a dystopian element of that, Definitely. being able to track everything. 
see yeah see everything this is the prime trade-off i think again i don't think most people would say that cutting down on fraudulent use of government funds is a bad aspiration or cutting down on tax evasion is a bad aspiration but the question is you know is a trade-off in privacy worth it for those two things and that's not really an economic question per se you know that's more of a philosophical or societal question and i don't know where i myself personally you know fall on that spectrum quite yet you have more important matters to attend <laughs> uh, perhaps or i'm just not in the seat where uh, thinking about those questions in too much detail is a good use of time <laughs> you don't think about things you don't think about yeah i guess for me like i find it fascinating as a topic but you know at the end of the day like i'm not working at a central bank or i'm not working at you know the united states treasury or whatever so <laughs> you know my my opinions can't find their way into meaningful impact in the world so today i can't on i, that particular I can't have you weigh in on the trillion dollar platinum coin <laughs> Not quite have you have so. you seen this? Yes, yeah, of course, of course. Can we mint our way out of out of debt? Interesting discussion. But just on this topic, before we close it out, you know, I think the Bank of America report that came out this week is super interesting. Where, uh, you know, they basically said ninety five percent of the central banks out there are exploring CBDC in some form or fashion. I think twelve banks are already you know having small pilot programs in place. You know, the amount of efficiency that CBDCs could drive in the banking ecosystem is too hard to ignore the benefits for governments in terms of traceability and, you know, cutting down things like tax evasion, like we talked about, mm-hmm. are too hard to ignore. So, you know, this analyst at B of A basically came out guns blazing saying CBDCs are the future. It's going to happen. Get ready. Well, we'll see if they're right. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of going back to just the appetite that exists for you know, tools that will allow institutional investors to wade into crypto. Are there any sort of new tools that they're clamoring for from you? Maybe tools that allow them to access corners of the decentralized finance market. Mm-hmm. Is there an increase or a decrease in appetite there? Yeah, I would say there's definitely an increase in interest and engagement, whether that translates into buying decisions and people deploying things. I think we're a little bit early to tell. But what I would say is we're quite focused on building, I would say, the building blocks or at least making the building blocks available. So think about something like a wallet, right? Like if you want to interact with a digital asset ecosystem, whether it's publicly traded crypto or something like NFTs or a permissioned ledger, you need to know how to like operate a wallet. Mm-hmm. And a lot of companies struggle with this. They're like, how do I manage private keys? Mm-hmm. How do I know which wallet provider to pick? Do I need to use a licensed custodian or should I self-custody? Like these basic, basic questions, I don't think 90% of enterprises out there, let alone folks in the financial services industry, which you would think would be more savvy about this, yeah. can actually answer those questions or at least get consensus in their organization around those questions. And so what we're trying to do is actually abstract away some of those decisions and offer them up what we think are the best in class solutions across those building blocks. So another thing we're working on is what we're calling wallets as a service, mm. where we're going to aggregate, you know, several different wallet and custody providers into our single, what we call code connect platform and make those available to our existing clients so that, you know, they can have some degree of comfort that, Hey, you know, FIS has got a big crypto team. They've aggregated these five or seven wallets. These are probably more legit than maybe the other 500 options out there, right? Um, so I think it's it's so hard to say, like, what's where's the investment going? Where 
as I look across our landscape and financial services more particularly, other than like the maybe five to 10% of companies that have decent, you know, size and well-educated crypto and Web3 teams, I think the other 90% are really focused on these basic building block questions. And again, can't answer some of what, you know, us crypto natives or crypto experienced folks would consider, you know, very basic. And so is that up and running? So I'm an institution, I can go on the platform and see- Under development, under development. <laughs> not, not available yet, but we hope to launch at some point later this year. Um, and like I mentioned, we'll offer options that are self-custody, options that are with a licensed custodian, options that are more suited to, you know, asset management or financial services use cases, options that are more suited to consumer facing use cases like loyalty and NFTs. So we really want to make that transition or that journey or that entry into Web3 as easy as we can for for some of our clients. And I just realized I didn't answer the last part of your question, which was kind of around some of the quarters of the industry like DeFi. Uh, we're actually quite bullish on DeFi as a concept. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, some of the recent market turmoil or cataclysm has actually proven the resilience of some of the DeFi protocols where through all of this, they've kind of functioned as expected and not had some of the issues that a lot of these DeFi players have had. And so I think DeFi has got all sorts of complex legal and regulatory questions that are going to need to be explored over the next few years before institutions jump in meaningfully. But from like a conceptual standpoint, I think it is a corner of the market that us and our clients specifically in the asset management space are, are quite interested in. What about NFTs? Yeah. That's another area of investment. Um, I think we're very interested in the use cases of NFTs to drive consumer engagement and brand loyalty. You know, I personally have been super impressed by what Nike has done. You know, the span of two years, they've gone from not having anything really based on NFTs to, I think, generating last year over $100 million in net revenue from NFTs, most of which was through royalties on the resale of those NFTs. So if I'm like a, a business, like think about like Apple, for example, mm -hmm. right? They sell iPhones, MacBooks, whatever. They make a bunch of revenue when someone buys it for the first time. They make absolutely nothing when someone resells their their phone on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace, you know, and that phone probably gets resold two, three times through its entire life. What if Apple could NFT every phone and you couldn't access that phone unless you had the NFT that you had to purchase alongside the phone? And every time you did that, Apple gets a little cut um, so that every time a iPhone gets resold, they make a little bit of money, just like every time a special editions pair of sneakers is sold, Nike's making a little bit of money. So I think like there's use cases that if I'm in a consumer facing, you know, brand or retailer that has that sort of, you know, revenue stream potential, I've got to think they're looking at it. Well, you know, just looking at our own business, like one of the corners of the market that have you know, in, even in the wake of everything with FTX and the long list of beleaguered firms, there is an increase in appetite among some of the larger brands about expanding their footprint in NFTs, the metaverse. So there's almost like this consumer element that's still strong. And, you know, at the end of the day, and you can maybe speak to this, these assets are just like any other and in, in, in as much as they need to be stored properly and accessed efficiently and people need help with that. Yeah, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, look, NFTs have some interesting use cases and a lot of value in the right use cases, but 
I think right now the user experience, particularly around storing NFTs and tracking them and trading them is exceptionally poor. You know, there's a lot of companies that are working on, you know, very user-friendly wallet experiences where they almost abstract away the crypto or the blockchain element of it. But I think until we see more of that and the consumer experience is a bit more intuitive, it's going to be hard to drive uh, a lot of adoption there. But again, I think there's a lot of companies working on it. So that's a problem that's going to get solved. It's just a question again of whether that's, you know, a few months or a, a few years until it's solved and we see that impact on adoption. Any other closing thoughts? What are you maybe most excited for in this year, 2023? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, I would say I am, I don't know if excited is the right word, but I am most interested to see how the events of the past nine months shape the regulatory landscape going forward. Mm. Uh, you know, there's been obviously a lot of interest and heightened awareness from regulators in the wake of what's happened over the past nine months, whether that's, you know, some of the U.S. agencies like the DOJ or SEC or CFTC, whether it's policymaking bodies like Congress or the U.K. Parliament or whatever it is, that awareness is good, even though it's been driven, you know, by unfortunate events and, you know, some pretty cataclysmic losses. But I think it's always been kind of this dark cloud that's been hanging out over the future of the industry is like, how is it going to be regulated? And what does that mean in terms of products and services and investment levels and adoption? And I think a lot of that ambiguity is going to get clearer over the course of this year. So I'm really excited to see, particularly in the US, what regulators do, if anything, from a broader perspective in the wake of what's gone on. I'm curious to see um, whether there are any changes to the MICA framework in Europe. Mm. I'm curious to see how some of the more forward-leaning nations in APAC uh, adjust their regulatory regimes or advance their regulatory regimes. So yeah, whether I'm excited for that or not, I guess depends on some of the outcome of that stuff, but I'm, I'm definitely paying a lot of attention and very interested because at least in the financial services world, obviously how things are regulated can have a big impact on what gets invested in or what use cases get deployed. Sounds a bit masochistic. <laughs> well, sir, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Appreciate you stopping by. Yeah, I appreciate you having me, Frank. And it's it's going to be an interesting year, that's for sure. So looking forward to uh, you know uncovering that with you guys and the rest of the industry. Yeah, keep in touch, please. Once again, we've been joined by our guest, Nabil Manji, head of crypto and Web3 at WorldPay. Where can we learn more about what you're working on? Yeah, the best place, honestly, is LinkedIn. Um, so I'm at LinkedIn. If you search Nabil Manji and WorldPay or FIS, I should pop pretty close to the top of that list. It's not that common of a name. Um, but yeah, I, I generally post, you know, um, when I'm speaking at events or podcasts or, you know, publishing in a, a, a news publication or attending events or whatever. So yeah, if folks are interested in following what WorldPay and FIS and my team are up to in the crypto space, definitely give me a follow on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for being on the show. Great. Thanks, Frank. The Scoop will be back for you with another great guest. Have an awesome day.